The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Monstrous Regiment, featuring a roundtable of Dominion women seeking to honor Jesus Christ in applying God's Word fearlessly and faithfully in all callings and seasons of life, both in and out of the home, reversing the curse and smashing pagan strongholds. We're all familiar with the concept of romantic love, but where does that concept come from? What are its underlying ideas? Is it something that we've always had, or is it unique to Western society? The French thinker Denis de Rougemont wrote a landmark book uh, entitled Love in the Western World to discuss these questions, and today I'm thrilled to welcome Stephen Perks to the podcast at long last uh, to go over some of what de Rougemont wrote about in his book. I'm Susanna Roundtree. And this is the Monstrous Regiment. Hello, Stephen. Hello. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah, I think you were one of the very first people I contacted back when we started this podcast to ask you to come on. So it's great to finally be getting around to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's been a while. I've uh, I've reread the book since then, and it took me quite a while. But uh, it's a it's a great pleasure to be here. <laughs> great. So um, so this book. Um, deals a lot with medieval courtly love and uh, like a lot of thinkers de Rougemont traces the western the whole western idea of romantic love he traces that all the way back to the courtly love ideal of the middle ages and he points out that the ancient world did have a concept of passion but they tended to view it as a kind of madness Mm. Um, here's a quote from the book he says in the east and also in the greece of plato human love has usually been regarded as mere pleasure and physical enjoyment. Not only has passion in the tragic and painful sense of the word seldom been met with there, but also, and especially, it has been despised in the eyes of current morals and treated as a sickness or frenzy. Um, So this whole notion of romantic love was not something that was present in the ancient world. And uh, as we've mentioned before in this podcast, uh, the ancient Greco-Roman culture had a very demeaning view of women. They you would use words like sick and infirm. and So um, so romantic love, I guess, as an urge to unite yourself with one of these infirm creatures would have been despised. Hmm. And so it wasn't until the medieval courtly love phenomenon that a major civilization began to think of romantic love as something admirable and even sacred. So... Over the last 12 months, as I've been working on a novel which is set in the 12th century in the High Middle Ages when courtly love began to emerge as a big cultural phenomenon, um, I've been doing a bunch of research into some of this literature, uh, especially the Arthurian romances of Credi and de Troyes. Um, Credian wrote his four stories between about 1170 and 1180, uh, probably commissioned by his employer, who was a... Uh, Countess of Champagne named Maria France, and she was the daughter of Eleanor of Aquitaine, who was a famous figure from that particular time period. So, Credion was among the first writers to incorporate courtly love themes into Arthurian literature. He was, for example, he was the inventor of the whole Lancelot Guinevere and King Arthur love triangle, so he's a major figure in the literary tradition. His romances were also influenced by the troubadours of southern France, who were noble minstrels who became famous for composing passionate love poetry. And I think you're going to give us a lot more in-depth 
look at those men um, shortly, which I'm looking forward to. But um, but there's a typical courtly love story from this period that um, that I was reminded of as I was preparing for this podcast. It tells how the the, um, the French troubadour Geoffrey Rudel heard of the beauty of Hodierna, the Countess of Tripoli. He fell in love with her from afar, and after writing her a great deal of passionate love poetry, he finally travelled east with the Second Crusade in the hopes of seeing her. Unfortunately, he fell ill, probably with love sickness or something, on the journey, and by the time he reached Tripoli, he was dying, and so when she heard the news, Countess Hodierna came down out of her castle to meet him and held him in her arms as he died. And so I thought this was a very typical look at um, the whole ideal courtly love. You've got this lover who's so consumed by passion for a woman who is very far away and unattainable. Um, she's usually much higher status than he is. Um, he serves her by writing poetry or doing deeds of bravery in her name. Um, the relationship gets, um, there's all sorts of difficulty and suffering and um, usually adventures because of the woman's social or marital status. And it usually ends with both of the lovers dying or at least one of them. So you can think of um, Dante and Beatrice from the Divine Comedy or the um, well-known knight and lady couples from medieval romance like Lancelot and Guinevere or Tristan and Isolde. Crédion de Troyes' employer, Mary of Champagne, together with her uh, mother, Eleanor of Aquitaine, and several others, the cent central figures in the creation of the courtly love tradition, and according to Marie's courtier, Andreas Capellanus, these women set up a, quote, court of love in Poitiers. It was designed to adjudicate lovers' quarrels and make rulings on questions of romantic love. Um, and one of our major um, sources on medieval courtly love was Capellanus's list of rules which he wrote down um, according to him these were some of the rules that the courts applied and, and here are some of them I thought I'd read them out um, marriage is no real excuse for not loving and by that I, I mean you know by that he meant even married people should have courtly love affairs with yeah. other people he wasn't envisioning that the married couple would have a, a courtly love relationship with each other yeah um, well, that's interesting. Sorry, can I? Can I? Yes, that's interesting because you see, according to De Rougemont, um marriage and courtly love or uh, uh, love affairs are incompatible. It's not just that they, you know, uh, they don't, they can't go together. And take given uh, De Rougemont's theory, there's a reason for this. And it all goes mm. back to the Cathars and their theology. But, but carry on with your list. I, I just wanted to uh, make, sure, make yeah. that, that point. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I, th I really think this list of uh, courtly love rules really supports um, Jerusalem's um, hypothesis. Mm. Uh, so, so marriage is no real excuse for not loving. Um, here's another one. When made public, love rarely endures. So you can see how that is um, as opposed to yeah. uh, marriage. marriage. Um, here's another one. The easy attainment of love makes it of little value. Difficulty of attainment is prized. Mm. When a lover suddenly catches sight of his beloved, his heart palpitates. Real jealousy always increases the feeling of love. A slight presumption causes a lover to suspect his beloved. Well, that sounds nice and comfortable, doesn't it? <laughs> he whom the thought of love vexes eats and sleeps very little. There you've got the suffering again. 
And um, a, a true lover is constantly and without intermission possessed by the thought of his beloved. Yeah. That's just some of the rules that I pulled out of my handy little um, portable medieval reader. Yeah. So for modern people, this can be pretty hard to take seriously, this idea that love is primarily about suffering flamboyantly for the sake of a lady you don't actually want to marry or even in most cases sleep with. And uh, we see this in a lot of the medieval literature. Um, here's how Denis de Rougemont explains Tristan and Isolde. He says, Tristan and Isolde do not love one another. They say they don't, and everything goes to prove it. What they love is love and being in love. They behave as if aware that whatever obstructs love must ensure and consolidate it in the heart of each and intensify it infinitely in the moment they reach the complete obstruction, which is death. Yeah, can I can I say something there? Do, uh, mm -hmm. do you do you think that um, you say uh, you've said that you, uh, modern people find this pretty hard to take seriously? And I guess if you put it to them in those terms, they may well. But I do think you see this played out in modern relationships very often. Mm -hmm. I don't say always, but I, I don't think it's that alien. It's just that people might not really understand where this all comes from and now i'm not saying it's ubiquitous but uh, i do think you do get it but it's it's very interesting um and i think that this this whole i these all these ideas this idea of love it's come through very strongly in our mm. culture in our in people's understanding of relationships and being in love um, yes. This kind of thing, and uh, you know, there's there's that uh, <laughs> there's that uh, song. You always hurt the one you love, and oh, yeah, yeah. and I think. But the thing is, you see, that's just the it's point. Pure, being pure in love, love, being in love, isn't really about loving the object. And mm -hmm. I think you know the the, the other person. And I think this is what really uh, de Rougemont um, is getting at, because it all comes back to the um, the Cathar idea of salvation. And de Rougemont sees the, the Western idea of love as a kind of secularization or even a vulgarization of Cathar theology. And there's this statement he makes in, on page 308 and he says this and I quote when the lover in the Manichaean legend has undergone the great ordeals of initiation he is met you remember by a dazzling maiden who welcomes him with the words I am thyself unquote mm. and at another point he talks about the narcissism involved in all of this um medieval uh, this yeah. courtly idea of love and basically the idea behind Cathar theology and it was the idea behind all dualism all the dualist heretical sects preceding that and it goes back a long long way the idea is that the human soul is a, a divine spark trapped in a body and mm -hmm. salvation is escape from that body and so, and in a sense, we're being reunited with its true origin, its true self. So that idea, I am thyself, that is about the Cathar idea of salvation. And what de Rougemont is saying in here, and I find this quite fascinating, is that the, 
um, troubadours used um, this whole idea of love, courtly love and um, uh, loving from afar and all this as a metaphor for Cathar, the Cathar religion or the Cathar view of salvation. But eventually mm. that it ceased to be understood as a metaphor. Perhaps even the troubadours didn't really altogether sometimes realise it was just a metaphor. And it became it became taken seriously as a reality and it became secularised kind of and then it became the way that we thought yes. about and, and, and vulgarised. And I find this really uh, quite fascinating. Anyway, I, I did interrupt you there. Do carry on if you like. <laughs> I, I, I think I should say at this point, I think there's no point in me trying to get my video working because every time, I've been trying repeatedly and every time um, it just stops. I'm sorry about that. I'm sorry. Anyway, yeah, carry on. We'll just go with audio then. Yeah. Yes, so um, I'd, love, I'd love to chat a bit more about the Cathars um, in a minute. Um, yeah. One yeah. of, but yeah, um, de Rougemont, um talks about the definition of courtly love as being a um, as, as, as being a love of love and a love um, and, and a love that depends on um, passion which is actually an old definition of passion is suffering and, and and like you said it's it's based on a dualistic um, theology which we'll, we'll talk about later about how that dualistic theology got into it but the, that's that's why the suffering, the passion, is so important because mm. um, the love, as as you see when you read the lovers in the um, the courtly love romances, the lovers are often trying to needlessly complicate things. Um, their whole the whole point of their passion is that it's an unhappy passion. It's the suffering that their love causes that they're most addicted to and that they find the most valuable because it's going to help purify them and bring them up to this. Um, um, unity with uh, the divine, which is not to say that there aren't some attractive things in the practice of courtly love. Um, mm. I remember reading Andreas Kapolanos's rules uh, many, many years ago when I was small and thinking that some of them sounded pretty good, like um, that which a lover takes against the will of his beloved has no relish. Well, that sounds pretty manly. Or um, here's another one. A true lover does not desire to embrace and love anyone except his beloved. And, and so... Um, one of the things that struck me about it, even at the time, was that this was a lot kinder to women than um, a lot of what had come before. Well, I, I, so I, I agree with you there. And the interesting thing about this is that um, when Christianity went, uh, came into the Greco-Roman world, it was a real mm. liberation for women. Yes. And, and, I mean, feminists talk about uh, women's liberation today. The world has never seen... Uh, mm. since a liberation for women such as that Christianity brought for the early church and that's why there were a lot of women in the early church and uh, it, it, yes. it, it, it was immense but it has to be said that very early on the influence of Greco-Roman culture and ideas came into the church mm. and corrupted it and you can see this working itself out in many ways and so, in the monstrous regiment of women, yes, the original John Knox pamphlet. Well, <laughs> yeah, quite, and and before that as well, uh, even before that, <laughs> ideas of um, came from the Greek world into the church and 
really uh, corrupted the Christian faith mm. to some extent. I'm not saying it corrupted it such that it wasn't there, but w I think it's important to look back and understand. And it wasn't universal, but it did have quite an influence. So that that yes. that I think this is a fantastic example of exactly of exactly what you're talking about. This whole um, courtly love um, subject, yeah. because you know I've, I've read a lot of medieval literature, and um, you know I write I write literature set in medieval times, so I'm always reading the medieval literature. Mm. Um, the reigning literary genre before courtly romances was um, the chanson de geste, um, yeah. you know, the Song of Roland, the Song of the Said. Um, those those poems, well, especially not the Song of Roland, that Roland doesn't have any major female characters at all, and the, the relationships that matter in that story are the relationships between Lord and Knight. Um, the Song of the Said has more prominent feminine roles, still result, revolves around that feudal lord and knight relationship. Um, I have some in-depth articles on both of those poems on my blog, mm. uh, Vintage Novels. But it's only it really struck me that it's only in Credian's romances that you start to get women as major characters in the stories with agency in the plot. Um, and it, it, was, it was just eye-opening to me to read... Um, a medieval book in which you have women being valued for their intelligence or their discretion or their character, for their conversational skill, um, seeing them freely interact socially with men, going on quests, having friendships with each other as well as the men. It, mm. it was, it's one of one of the earliest, one of the best early um, uh, depictions of female characters that I've come across, and um, and and at the same time that I can see how um, the the heresy that courtly love was based on is um, corrupting this and causing causing the women characters to be somewhat idealized and pedestalized. Um, even at the same time, you can you can see that this is a Christian heresy. This is yeah. that this could not have come about except in a Christian context. Well, there are a lot of things like that. Um, Things that have gone wrong, uh, things that are wrong, but in actual fact, they're a corruption of Christian uh, teaching, or th they could only have come about because Christianity was there first, and so that's true. Um, yeah, I agree with you. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I was, I was, I've also been thinking about, for example, the Song of Songs in yeah. the Bible. Yeah. Is you know, generations of theologians have seen that as being symbolically about Christ and the church spiritualized um, it yeah well they, they they do spiritualize it but um at the same time I, you know I don't think that it's not about Christ and the church. Uh, no no yeah <laughs> it's 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 about both you know romantic married love and about Christ and the church and um you know so so that shows that um even from very early on in um the I, I guess you might call it the Judeo-Christian tradition even from very on in um in in the history of the church, we are seeing um, a link between writing about love and writing about um, faith. And yeah, but it's interesting, isn't it? You see, I don't know if this takes us a bit wider than this discussion now, but um, <coughs> we have that the Song of Songs, which, let's face it, theologians are embarrassed about. Oh, yes. Yeah, th because it's about it's about love, it's about sex, and they're embarrassed about that, so they've got to spiritualise it away. Yeah. But you see, I think this brings in another problem that the church has always struggled with, and the church has always struggled with sex. It's got a problem with it. If you look at throughout the history of the Christian um, 
religion, you you have this problem rearing its ugly head and and causing problems, and it's not there in the Bible, but in the in the but you know I, I once heard somebody say this: uh, sex is like fire. If it's in the right place, it's a real blessing. So if you've got your fire in your hearth and it's you know where you mm. produce a heat in your room, it's in it's an immense blessing. Uh, once it gets onto the rug, you've got a real problem. It's got to be contained in its rightful place and that is marriage and the problem is that um the church hasn't seemed to be able to cope with this very well and so you get it going to the other real extremes and the dualism all all yeah. plays into this for example um um clement of alexandria who was yeah. a mentor for oregon um he said that um uh you should have you should feel no no real um desire for your wife at all and the wife should feel no desire for you <laughs> you should just you should just have sex out of a um a, a logical desire to reproduce the human race okay i know it sounds listen i could i could read you some of this stuff and it sounds utterly absurd um and the problem is for them it, there's something tainted about this and it, mm. it's not just that in the wrong place it's tainted that is to say in outside of marriage but even within marriage it is so and the, affecting this is a whole thing about dualism because um yeah. this was this it had really come badly into the church and started affecting it uh, back then but then you see um you cannot really suppress human nature unnaturally for long without it leading to serious problems i mean you know bad effects both personally and culturally and that played That's itself right. out in the church um but the cathar religion took this yeah. dualism and it, you almost got a real transformation that instead of being instead of sex being you see, the problem with the Cathars were, were that um, theoretically they're supposed to not, they're supposed to think that sex is a bad idea because what happens when you have sex is that a part of the divine soul, a spark of the divine soul gets trapped in a human body. And, and, and you shouldn't, yes, yeah, seriously, you shouldn't do this. Yes, yes. You shouldn't do this. But you see, for them, the real problem was marriage because that's where children are likely to be born. They had all kinds of ideas about contraception and ways of trying to stop childbirth I, I, that mm. probably didn't work maybe some did i don't know but in actual fact the worst kind of sex for a cathar was married marital sex sex outside of marriage in their idea was less likely to produce children and therefore less problematic and it is simply not the case that they that they withdrew from having um sexual relationships what they withdrew from was mar sex within marriage and this is why right. it was it was seen as such a heresy and it was a terrible heresy it was the worst form of heresy now i don't think that justifies the way they were treated which was no, and, um, and to be quite honest the way the albigensian crusade was run it was as much a land grab as anything and it, yeah, and I, I can believe it. It's a cynical. Think about listeners. Um, um, I'm not. I'm not 100% um, caught up on exactly where the Cathars came from, but I believe that they were a 
heretical sect that was very um, very prominent in the south of France around the, uh, was it 1100s, 1200s? Yeah. And then in the 1200s, the church ran a series of crusades um, designed to suppress them and stamp them out. Yeah. Is that correct? That's correct. I mean, Languedoc, I don't know if I've said that mm-hmm. correctly, my French pronunciation is very poor, although actually that's not French, is it? Um, right? Uh, sorry? Um, my French pronunciation is even worse. I don't think it could get any worse than mine. I, pr- I tend to pronounce um, French like Latin. I pronounce every syllable, so <laughs> it doesn't work really. Um, and, well, but the point about the Cathars was uh, that was a particular manifestation of something which was far older. You have right, to you so go back from Manichaeism, the dualism. You got the Paulish, the Paulicians, the Massalians, and the Boga, uh, the Bogomils. The Bogomils were in the Balkans, and they were a dualistic uh, se- uh, sect yeah. as well. I've heard of the Paulicians in the Balkans as well. Yes, yes, and the Massalians, and the Massalians had a bad reputation for being immoral but it's difficult to find a lot of information out about them. But certainly the Bogomils, um, and it's thought that the that really... That now, the, the scholarly literature does have some disagreement about this, but I, I agree. I think, it's, I, I think it's pretty much clear that what happened was that the, the, the theology, the faith of the Bogomils moved west, and that's what the Cathars are. They, they are southern French... Um, flowering of that kind of dualistic theology and it's not Christian there are various books you can get uh, because they call themselves uh, the good men or uh, often uh, writers say they were good Christians there was Mm -hmm. nothing Christian about Cathcatharism any more than there was about Bogomilism or Manichaeism it it is a yeah, go in, in fact, I've, I've got this quote from the um, medieval historian Richard Southern when he was talking about um, medieval romances of this period, which were, you know, very much influenced by courtly love and um, and, and that's Southern French her- heresy. His quote was, the real internal religion of the heart was untouched by Christianity. And, like, he lived, I don't think he was... Um, he had read um, de Rougemont's book at all at the mm. time that he wrote this, but he could see that the worldview that was coming out was not Christian at all. No, it was it was radically unchristian. But you see, it was complicated by the fact that the church herself had bought into the whole dualist way of thinking. So yeah. that there was a le- there was a level of hypocrisy when the church condemned Catharism. Now, th- I'm not saying it was total hypocrisy because Catharism was very very far removed from christianity despite people saying it was christian what would you would, what would you say are the main um um examples of its theology like they had an interesting view on the creation of the physical universe didn't they well their whole their whole idea of the creation i mean for example they would deny the incarnation uh, okay. jesus only appeared um, uh, to be in human form their whole view of creation and everything is the whole dualist thing that um, God the supreme God created mm-hmm. spiritual beings those spiritual be- including Satan those spiritual beings rebelled and they created the physical world so that everything exists is 
it's all to do with emanations from the supreme being it's very much uh linked with the whole uh yes yes well gnosticism yes gnostic really it's a form of gnosticism and gnosticism mm. is uh the new testament itself is very anti-gnostic there are places where any anyone who denies that christ has come in the flesh you know mm -hmm. yeah. that. that's deliberate that's self-consciously directed against gnosticism it, it early made it, it made its influence among christians felt very early even in new testament times uh, but it's not christian but it hid within the church and the problem is that much i don't say all but much of that dualistic understanding of life was accepted by the church herself and so it became a problem how do you deal with a, a, a radical heresy like Catharism when you actually share some of its ideals and right. you know I read in one book it said the real problem that the Catholic Church had with Catharism wasn't its dualism but the fact that it feared that it would take over in the place of Cath uh, in the place of Catholicism. Catholic. In other words, and that's why the Inquisition was so strong that really it, they reacted in such a brutal manner because it was a threat to their own power base. And mm -hmm. so you see the same things being played out over and over again in the church. It's like Jesus said, from, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of God suffereth violence and is taken by men of violence. Um, it was all to do with power so it, it was a complicated problem but the Cathar religion itself was much more uh, radical and um, consistent in its dualism and it, it accepted that whole business of um, you know that uh, um, the physical uh, everything that is they had all these emanations Jesus didn't actually come in the flesh um, mm -hmm. and uh, the God of the Old Testament is is uh, the God of the Old Testament is Satan, effectively, not not right. not the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore. So, the, so that that harsh, unforgiving God of the Old Testament yeah, yeah. was was the creator of the physical world. He, and he's bad, and he's he, yes, um, yes. They call it the, they call him the demiurge, and he's like the cosmic villain. Of that's that's <laughs> that's correct. And so, what uh, does salvation look like in a in such a um, system? death that's yes. the that is it is escape from the physical world it is re reconnecting with the div you are really i mean i don't mean you really are in this way of thinking you are really a divine spark trapped mm -hmm. in a human body and your problem is not ethical it's metaphysical you have to escape right. from that uh, body and be reunited with the divine spark. Hence, de, de Rougemont's quoting that thing where the maiden after death says, uh, welcome, I am thyself. In other words, and that goes to the heart of why it's so narcissistic as well. Um, yes. Oh, sorry, Susanna, I forgot now the question you just asked me then. Oh, I asked, I asked you what salvation looked like. In oh, yes, yes, sorry. It's... Um, yeah, it's escape. It's the whole dualist thing. It's escape from this world into the true spiritual world. Okay. Mm. And this is the source of all this heresy. But you see, the problem is that it's, the church is still not free of this. Not in quite as radical a form 
as the Cathars had it. But it's still, in my opinion, you see, we have this problem, don't we, of all these ideas of eschatology, such as um, yeah. uh, premillennialism, uh, dispensationalism, escapism, mysticism, pietism. All these things, in my opinion, are the outcome of this basic dualistic understanding of life. And I wonder whether the real problem that's driving all this is that the church has never really dealt with the dualistic heresy properly. It, in my mind, yeah. it's the heresy of heresies. Not because there haven't been others, there have, but they've often been dealt with. And only particular manifestations of dualism have been dealt with by the church. And the actual idea carries on to continue corrupting. And I, you see, when I go to church, so many churches, I go to church and I observe what's happening today. What you've got is a form of escapism. An escapism yes. into this spiritual realm on a Sunday morning. And everybody's waiting uh, for when Jesus will come back and we'll all escape. In fact, I went round um, some years ago, about six years ago. I, I asked to go and see the pastors in the town where I lived. As many as I could, I went to see to talk to them about how we could, as Christians in this area, start living as a real Christian community and transform our area. And I talked about four issues. I talked about um, having a Christian education system, a Christian welfare system, a Christian arbitration system, and a Christian um, medical system. The last one, medical, that's quite difficult, I know. But the point is, I was saying, not how could we get together and have joint services and worship all in the same way but how can we really be a social order that transforms the world around us and one of the guys said to me he said while I was talking to him he said stop don't you know Jesus is coming back uh, and, and yeah, this yeah. but you see this is it what he's saying is look this you, you're trying to polish brass on a sinking brass ship and my point was, well, Jesus came to redeem this lost world. Well, I don't think it is a sinking ship. It's, it's, it's our inheritance, okay? And I, I, it, the Bible says that God has given the whole earth to Christ as in his inheritance. But he couldn't see this because for him, Christianity was about escaping this world. What's the point in polishing brass on a sinking ship? We are going to be taken out of this world. Now, okay, I'm not saying he was a cather, but what I'm saying is that the dualistic understanding of reality is at work in all that kind of thinking. And it still goes on to corrupt our understanding of the mission of the church. And I don't think exactly. that the Great Commission can be fulfilled if this isn't dealt with quite decisively. So these, these things, although we're talking about medieval court 11 it may look like yeah. a rather ar arcane sort of indulgence in past it's actually not it's highly relevant it's highly it's relevant in, sorry hand in hand with, it's, it's hand in hand with this whole problem of dualism that still plagues us today a absolute um, absolutely did you want to um did you want to explain about how the, um so all this dualistic heretic theology wound up being embodied in um Courtly love, according this was this was I think Derugemont's most interesting well yes insight in his book. When when I fir I first read this book, Love in the Western World, quite some years ago, and although I knew about dualism and and I'd read about that kind of thing, I read Derugemont's book and I did not 
I found it very interesting, very intriguing, uh, and, and very enlightening. But there were elements in it, and I thought, well, I'm not sure how does that work? How, what, what is the means by which this idea of Cathar theology becomes secularised into a concept of romantic love? And I read it, I was really quite intrigued. But I, I can't say I fully understood it. And then I read some other books, and I read on two subjects. I read much more thoroughly on the whole history of dualism, you know, um, Gnosticism, Manichaeism, all those dualistic sects that we talked about, like the Bogomils, the Cathars. But I also read a book, and I want to recommend this. I read a book called Agape and Eros by Anders Nygren. And I want to say that... Um, once I read this book and then read about the history of dualism, a lot of what de Rougemont said began to make a lot more sense because I started to understand how that whole theology worked, that whole religion of dualism worked. And once I got to understand more of that, de Rougemont's book came much more into focus and I could see how it worked, how this dualism passed over into a sort of a secularised form into, um, into this romantic idea of love. But it's not just... Well, the, sorry, go on. Well, well practically speaking, um, you know, because Catharism was always um, persecuted so much, besides the fact that it was a Gnostic sect, which is all about secret salvation through secret knowledge... So if, if they were going to express their um, theology at all, and uh, I believe it's difficult to find out about Cathar theology because it was so um, it was supposed to be such a secret both because of the persecutions and because it was the whole point of it was that it was secret knowledge and you needed to be initiated into it to find out. Mm. And so really the only public way in which any of these people could... Um, um, communicate what they believed was in a very veiled form, and so um, yeah, and and so they would encode it into their storytelling, and they would encode it into their poetry. And I mean, I'm an author; I, I encode my beliefs into my stories and my uh, most of my stories. I don't really write poetry. Um, well, that's what literature does, doesn't it? Exactly, that's what it does. It turns things into metaphor. And you're right, that's, I think that's what happened with the troubadours. Now, I, I'm going to say something... That was, that was the southern French, the, the, the troubadours, as we mentioned, they're from south, the south of France, which was, you know, the, the, the hotbed of Catharism. Yeah. What were you going to say? Well, we actually do know what the Cathars believed, and one of the reasons, in, and I, when I say this, I don't want anybody to think that I am justifying this, because I am not, but in actual fact, we, they did eventually find out, and we have a good record of what they believed because of the Inquisition. Uh. Because the Inquisition found out. Now, I am not saying that the Inquisition did right, don't get me wrong, but I'm saying we, there are a lot of records. And I want to recommend some books. So I'm going to try and switch my video back on and see if you can see for, for, for your... Can you see that book? Yes, it's um, titled it? Agape and Eros, Anders Nygren. That's A-N-D-E-R-S-N-Y-G-R-E-N. Yeah, okay. Um, and it, that was readable, was it? 
Yeah, good. Well, obviously, yeah. was he read? Now, I want to say that if you do want to read Derougement's book, I'm not saying you should have to read this first. But if you were to read Agape and Eros, not only would you have a real education in the whole thing about the difference between Agape and Eros and dualism and all that kind of thing, it would help you understand. Um, Derougement much more. I have to add, it is over 700 pages and it's a very stiff read, but it, <laughs> it, it is absolutely um, wonderful. It's, a, it, it's an immensely uh, interesting book. I, I can't recommend it too highly, but it will help you understand the, the whole thing. The, the other books that I read were all to do with the history of um, dualism but I've picked out two books that I think if you were to read these you would understand Catharism very well and this would enable you to um, understand what Derugement is talking about now can you read that okay how about that Catharism Catholics in a French village got it yeah okay now this book is by someone called um, Emmanuel Leroy La dure. My French is appalling. <laughs> Sorry. But the point is, this is a social history. And this is a history of a small Cathar community in Languedoc um, between 1294 and 1324. And this was after the main Cathar crusade. It was, at, it was, in, it was the very end of the Cathar, um, the Cathar episode. But it's a social history. And he goes in to the lives of the people what they believed, how they lived, and it's absolutely fascinating. I can't recommend it too highly. And it throws so much light onto what de Rougemont talks about. You begin to see how this whole thing worked. When I first read de Rougemont, as I say, I thought, well, okay, this is very interesting, and it's utterly fascinating, but how did that work? How I, how, I don't see all the connecting bits. But... Um, having read this bit, these books now, I can see the connections. I can see how it went from one to the other, and th this being social history, and he relies on the um, he relies on the transcripts of the uh, trials and the inquis of the Inquisition, which brought much to light. Now, the other book that I want to recommend deals with exactly the same set of people but from a historical or rather I should say from a chronological point of view can you see that okay yes the yellow cross the story of the last Cathars 1290 to 1329 okay so this deals in a sort of historical or chronological order it, it, it's not social history it's more traditional telling the story but it tells the right. same story about the same people as Montelou uh, but not as social history, but as chronological history. And if you read those two books together, by the way, they're absolutely fascinating just, just to read them, <laughs> to find out what it's about. I, I, it's, it's one of the most interesting uh, subjects, this, this whole thing to do with dualism, de Rougemont, um, mm. uh, uh, Anders Nygren, one of the most um, interesting subjects that I've read in, in a long time. That would give you such a good understanding of how the whole Cathar thing worked 
that it would bring into focus what de Rougemont sent and you would you would see what he's getting at. Um, now, obviously... Yeah, well, sorry, carry on. Well, I, I feel I already, like, you know, you, you come at it from reading a lot about the Cathars. I mm. come at it from reading a lot of the actual yeah. um, courtly love literature. And I feel like that has been really helpful as well. I mean, the story I told you about Hodierna of Tripoli... Mm. Um, you know, this troubadour fell in love with her without having even seen her. I yeah, mean, all that's, yeah. that's a very dualistic sort of yeah. thing to do, I guess. Um, he clearly wasn't... He was more interested in her reputation as a great beauty than as her actual um, existence. And, I mean, you know, who, who, who falls in love... Who really does fall in love with someone from afar, especially not in a, not in a time of mass communications? I mean... <laughs> I, I he think, wasn't really in love with her. It was, no. That was a pretty narcissistic thing to do. And then, you know, he, and then he he travels east in the hopes of seeing her. He's you know suffering because you know suffering is the is the mode of purification and, and salvation yeah. in this um, yeah in this whole worldview. And it, and and that suffering must eventually culminate in death. And so he he you know his whole life culminates when he meets Hodierna and dies. And so. Yeah. Um, and, and so it is. It's a parable of um, dualistic, Manichaean, Gnostic, Cathar theology. That's uh, uh, absolutely. That's and had he had he actually met her and got to know her, things might have worked out very different. Because there's that saying, isn't there? Never meet your idols. And this is a thing. Almost the whole thing can presuppose us not really knowing the other person as a human being. Um, uh, and uh, or it, or it doesn't it doesn't really work. It's an ideal. It's not really about the other person at all. Um, no. And so yeah, it's very interesting. Now you know far more about medieval um, literature than me. In fact, I com I confess my ignorance. I did start many years ago reading Lamont D'Arthur by um, uh, Thomas Mallory. Yeah, Mallory. Yeah. And I didn't get through it. I have to confess, it was it was um, uh, wasn't put into modern language. It was the uh, uh, original Middle English. Well, yeah. I, I don't. I, it was it was it was transliterated into modern letters, uh, mm. but it was hard going. But perhaps you could. What would you recommend as the? I know about the Song of Roland, um, but. That's kind of before this, isn't it? What would you recommend as the uh, a few of the best stories to read that would would, would give us um, a view of what's going on from the the side of uh, you know the courtly love literature? Um, yeah, sure. I would recommend Credian Trois um, Arthurian romances. I would re recommend Wolfram von Eschenbach's Parts of All. Um, the Mordatha is very interesting from the point of view of dualism and um, the whole thing about um, sex and marriage and all that. I actually like Mallory. I find him um, more orthodox than I find um, Credian. Would you recommend reading it then in a sort of a modern translation? Absolutely. Yeah, because I did struggle with that. It was like trying to read the... Uh, Anglo-Saxon chronicle in Anglo-Saxon, virtually impossible for me. Yeah, so, well, yeah. Well, the thing that struck me about Mallory is that he is much more Christian than um, Credian is. Well, that yes, yes, and I think because you see the whole Arthurian thing has a strong Christian influence, I think as well. 
I'm, I'm not saying there's only the Christian influence, but it is a sort of um, a, a, a redemptive resurrection sort of story as well. But I think there are all these other things. So maybe I should go back and read that. But um, It would be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, I, I will do that. Um, I've got a few novels I'm uh, um, stuck in at the moment, but I will, I will go and do that. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. Yeah, so, um, well, um, one, one book that I have that is very helpful for understanding medieval courtly love is um, it's, it's a collection of 100 Middle English lyrics. And if you just, um, there are different collections of Middle English poetry out there. Um, but I wanted, I, I wanted to talk about that, actually, because um, what happened was that um, through, through, so through the 1200s, um, the medieval church ran a series of crusades against the Cathars, trying to stamp them out, and it also tried to combat in them, them in other ways. Um, you mentioned the Inquisition. Um, another way was that they tried to produce cultural and literary works that would provide a um, something else. So, for instance, one of the things that Derudemont points out is that um, they fostered the cult of the Virgin Mary. Yeah as an attempt to, like, head off that heretical courtly love tradition. And so um, and so you have a, a lot of poetry um, treating the Virgin Mary almost like a courtly love um, yeah. object. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that absolutely fascinated me about this collection of Middle English lyrics is that a lot of the poems were about... Um, we're about courtly love in a secular context, but a lot of them were also about courtly love in a religious con context where they're depicting, for example, Jesus or Mary as being courtly lovers of mankind. Um, yeah. I, I thought I'd, I'd read out a stanza. This is, this is a pretty typical stanza yeah. from one of the poems. It reads, I crowned her... Um, sorry, it's, 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 it's Christ being depicted as sighing with passion for mankind. Right, yeah. And he says, I crowned her with bliss, and she me with thorn. I led her to chamber, and she me to die. I brought her to worship, and she me to scorn. I did her reverence, and she me villainy. To love one who loves is no mastery. Her hate made never my love her foe. Ask then no more questions why, but thus I swoon for love. Hmm. So... So when I first read these songs about four years ago, it, it struck me as strange, even as the time, even at the time that instead of um, you know Christ dying to uh, redeem and purify himself a bride, you have Christ going through this um, passion for a basically humanity as this fickle courtly love mistress. Yeah, it's it was theologically very weird. Yeah, yeah, I can I can see that. Um... That's very interesting. I'd never um, come across that before. Um, but as I say, I'm not that well read on the literature side of it. Well, I'm not well read at all, apart from my one foray into um, Lamar D'Arthur. But um, yeah, you can see how that they're trying to do something about it. But you see, this is very the problem very often. Even when the church realises a problem, they go about it in the wrong way to correct it and get involved with the very thing that they're supposed to be trying to deal with. Um, yeah, well, like one thing that Derudemont points out, um, and, and he says over and over in his book, is that the Christian ideal of marriage isn't 
um, supposed to be angst-ridden and tormented. Mm. Um, and, and and the whole distinctive, um, the, the distinctive um, element of the courtly love tradition is that it's supposed to be um, never-ending torment. Yeah. And so what they've what they've done in these um, in these sort of um, in, in these courtly love religious lyrics is that they've depicted they've depicted Christ as um, pretty much eternally suffering. Yeah. Interesting. Hmm. And I wonder how that works. I'm, I'm just thinking off the top of my head now. I wonder how that works with the whole idea that you very often get among Christians the idea that Christ has conquered and risen from the grave and ascended uh, is not quite seen as um, it's not as important to see it's all idea of the suffering Christ of course don't get me wrong Christ had to suffer for us to be redeemed but there's yeah. almost some sometimes there's almost a kind of um, a a wallowing in the concept of suffering. I mean, I have had Christians say to me, "Oh, suffering is good for you, suffering mm -hmm. itself." And I I remember saying this. I said, "Well, not for its own sake. Suffering's exactly. only uh, suffering's good if there's a it's for a reason. So, for example, if we through the sacrifice of obedience suffer persecution for Christ." Um, that's a, that's a sacrifice for obedience, and that you know that's a good thing, and that's a testimony to fit, to the faith. But this guy said to me, he said, "No, just it's suffering is good for you. Just to suffer is good for you." I said, I "No." I call that another outcropping of the um of of the dualism that you've been talking about. I, yeah, absolutely. And I, I said to this guy, I said, "Well, I, I don't agree with you. I don't see that the Bible teaches that." And when Jesus came across suffering, he always tried. To, to heal it when he came across people who were ill who were suffering he didn't say oh that's good for you just hang on a bit more in there you'll die in the end and then you'll be saved he, he didn't do that he healed them wherever Jesus found suffering and he came to heal now it is true that we through true through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God but that, I think that's different that's the sacrifice of obedience and it may be that we have to go through things that we find painful in order to learn things, in order to be... Um, uh, yes. And, and, but there's always a purpose to that. It's not suffering. Yes. It's not suffering for its own sake. It's not because... Um, I, I once went to a house group in, in this church and this, this, they started talking about going to heaven. <laughs> and and this, this lady said... Uh, Oh, death's the most natural thing in the world. I'm looking forward to it. And I said, that's not... You no, know, seriously. I said, and I said, that's not Christian. She said, what do you mean? I said, well, death is the curse for sin. Salvation is in exactly. Christ. And our destination is the resurrection, not heaven. We are there's definitely been a tradition within within the Christian church of seeing death as that um, Gnostic release from yes. the tribulations of the material that, that that's well that's correct and she she this all goes back of course to the greek or roman perspective what um anders nigran calls the alexandrian worldview um that really escape from the physical world is is yes. what salvation is all about 
and this has infected the church very strongly and um this lady had some very interesting well from bizarre ideas i i have to say she also she liked children and that's fine i mean there's nothing wrong with liking children um but she said i'm looking forward to heaven and she said about she's going to be going to love being with all the children in heaven and i said well i'm sorry but there's going to be no children in heaven and and i said and it's not heaven it's the resurrection and there won't be any children and she said what do you mean i said well who's gonna who's gonna volunteer to be a child for eternity <laughs> who's going to volunteer to be a child in the resurrection and even if you're there as a child i mean and this is speculation but you're gonna grow up. it just doesn't make sense so her idea of things was and she said oh she said <laughs> she said I don't want to be there if there's not going to be children there. That's terrible. But you see how illogical, this all throws up how illogical the whole idea of salvation is and how much it's formed, not by what the Bible teaches, but by almost folk religion. You get this kind of, and you, yes. you even get it here in the Church of England, in, um, in the churches, in the, in the villages. I went to a village church one time and uh, it was a C of E and they prayed for the dead and you don't I don't you don't usually hear that in the C of E but they prayed for the dead well I I don't I, anyway and a friend of mine said why do you do that and this guy said well the dead are all around us you know looking after us uh, this well, this isn't Christianity by any stretch of the imagination so all these things come into the church all these pagan ideas are still in the church and it's like a folk religion and the dualism is a one really strongly component of that whole folk religion idea and the lady yes. I, the lady i was talking about who who th wanted to go to heaven and thought death was the most natural thing in the world um she was an evangelical though and that which is different to the people at the in the village church who thought the dead was all around them looking after them um and, and that's different but even there it was very strong and so it seems to me that we have to deal the church has to deal with this whole problem of dualism because yeah. what, I think what reading de Rougemont and those other books have led me to realize is that this is not just one among many problems it's a very far-reaching really serious problem that affects a lot Absolutely. of things i mean even even because it's affected our culture generally it, it affects other things go if you go to your you know what i mean by a gp a medical your physician yes, the, yes. you go to general your general yeah general practitioner um yes. the medical model there of a human being is basically dualistic you've got your mechanical bits yeah. the bits you can yeah. make better by doing the bits of plumbing and internal plumbing and this kind of thing and then you've got the the mental bit and somehow the two are not connected and the whole medical model works on this now it is getting better and i have to say that uh, there is a realization that it's, it doesn't work like that unfortunately it the model they develop in isn't a christian model but they do realize that that model is problematic but that whole model was based on the dualistic perspective and it's informed Definitely. the west's understanding of medical things i was also interested in de Rougemont, and i'm still trying to figure this out because i know you you've mentioned it as well he brings this whole thing of um 
suffering even into war and totalitarianism and things like that yes and it's, i thought that was fascinating yes i do um, if, I, I could, if i could jump in there mm -hmm. i i mean in, in the um towards the uh the, the the end of the book he he really digs into a lot of um things a lot of ways that he believes that um that this whole courtly love idea the courtly love myth has impacted us throughout history down to the current day mm. and um I, I i had some disagreements with him in that section um and it's you know you were talking about um the necessity of keeping keeping our eyes on the um eschatology eschatological reality that after after suffering you know our suffering is for a for, it, we suffer towards a specific goal and mm. we're not going to suffer forever. You know, suffering is very much um, a limited experience for a purpose. We don't suffer for, our, for the sake of suffering mm. or for the sake of being liberated from um, the, the physical world. Um, mm. I, 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 I do think, um, I, I think that um, I almost overstated that a little bit. Um, he, it seems it seemed when he was going over literature and talking about literature that he was almost assuming that whenever you see suffering in literature or, or you know the course of true love failing to run smooth um, that that would have to be an effect of the courtly love man mm. um, uh, you know as a, as, a, as a fiction author myself I, I had a lot of objections to that um, for example I think as as we mentioned as we've talked a bit um, about suffering does have a place in the Christian life and you know one of the most important um, events that we've labelled passion is, you know, Christ's passion on the cross. So, mm. you know, obviously that passion is the template of all other passions. And so Richemont spends so much time talking about the false version of passion, the, the version that has no arrival point in the physical world. Yeah. Um, Christianity does have that arrival point in the physical world. But he, he spends very little time talking about the fact that this false passion actually comes from a true passion. And it's and it's the true passion behind all the heresy that is often also at work in our literature and culture. Now, I am not sure I agree with you there, but I I'm, I wouldn't be too dogmatic about this. It, it, there is a false passion, and there is the true passion. I agree, but I'm mm -hmm. not sure that he, he's not. He doesn't say that the the false passion comes from is a corruption of the true passion, does he? He's, or, or do you think he does? I mean, I think he's saying they're, they're totally different things, that Christ's passion, the, if you like, the true passion, the, the passion that saves, um, that delivers us, is of a completely different order, really. Um, and I think this uh, is where reading, uh, for me, reading... Um, <laughs> Uh, I think Nigren, Augustinian presuppositions maybe show. Well, well I, when I read Nigran's book, what it made me realise is the immense difference between agape and eros, and agape yeah. religion and, and eros religion. Now, when I say eros, I don't mean simply sex, and because we have the word erotic, it's often taken that way. But that's mm. not, that was only one minor aspect, well, oh, well, it's not minor, one aspect of eros. The whole idea of eros is now I can't do this let me try and get my video going again the whole idea of Eros is this man's search upwards right and outwards in other words to better himself to go up there to 
to he, he never looks back to those um who he can Reason. help but but he's seeking to better himself and move beyond so it's this is this is eros religion but this is agape religion god coming it's coming down coming down and transforming this world and this is what agape, yes yes now Huh. That's not to say there's, that Eros necessarily is always wrong, and, and An Anders Nygren doesn't say that. But but you can characterize, if you like, Christian religion as compared with non-Christian religion. Non-Christian religion, yeah. fundamentally in these terms, a difference between agape religion and Eros religion, and I think this plays into what. Um, Derugemont is talking about because you see the Cathar, the dualistic faith, is supremely Eros religion. It's man yes. escaping, bettering himself, going up there. It's man's um, transformation up there into the divine. Christianity is. Um, oh, what's it, oh, I'm trying to get this thing. Sorry. Christianity <laughs> is the opposite. <laughs> Christianity is God coming down here and transforming exactly. and that's why i say this background to it all really made me understand much more what what the issues that derugement is dealing with it made me understand them because this really is the difference and you see this even in the church much of the christianity that we have ad adopts much of this eros idea of you know going up and transforming not the idea of God coming down here in the incarnation yeah. and trans because the the, the, the the Cathars and the Gnostics reject the, the incarnation completely. It's it's a real anathema to them. But God incarnate mm. and we are in our it's, it's, we are to incarnate see, the religion. You can see how desperately important it is for agape based religion, for Orthodox Christianity, that there should be a an arrival point in the in the physical creation. Hmm. Yeah. I, I was thinking about I was thinking about how um, how the courtly love myth may or may not have um, become involved in um, our um, our culture today. Um, and I was thinking about you know the, the modern day romance genre. <laughs> To go from the, the, the very esoteric to the <laughs> to the somewhat ridiculous. From the sublime um, to the ridiculous, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, so one of the definitive tropes of romance genre fiction today is the um, happily ever after. Basically, you can't write romance fiction unless your couple winds up with a long-term happy ending at the yeah, end of it. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Derugemont... Um, talks about this as being a, a vulgarization or profanation of the heresy of courtly love. Um, well, I, I would be, I would be tempted to say that it's, it's, it's a re, it's, it's orthodoxy breaking back in. I, I agree with you there. I absolutely agree with you there, Susanna. You're right. Sorry, sorry I interrupted you. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, um, you know, it's, it's not, it, Derugemont would 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 um, refer to this as sort of a crowd pleasing, decadent variation yeah. of the heresy yeah. of courtly love, hmm. but um, but it's actually a denial that um, suffering is an end in itself. Uh, and I, so yeah. it's yeah, 
I agree with you there. I, I, I do agree with you because I think, and the interesting thing is, I think you see that kind of, and it can be quite, that sort of, you know, riding off into the sunset type ending can sometimes be a bit sort of wooden and, uh, and that. But I do agree with you. And I think you see it more in American and British cinema, for example, than you do in continental cinema. Where, existential, oh, where existentialism is much more uh, common and there is no proper ending and where Christianity has had more of an effect in recent times we find fr some frustration with those kinds of things saying well it hasn't ended well you know it hasn't ended and that's a similar that's a similar kind of thing so I think you're right there and I think those cultures that are more Christian tend to gravitate towards, if you like, the riding off into the sunset ending than those that have um, lost cr more Christianity. What do you think about that? I mean, uh, that's just a... I don't know, maybe that's... Sort oh, of I would have to think about it a bit more um, in order to, to make it... Uh, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, I was thinking about um, a couple of different um, real-life historical uh, love affairs. Oh, yeah. So... Mm. Um, so, for instance, an example of the kind of thing that I'm talking about would be J.R. Tolkien and his uh, romance with Edith Bratt. And I would call that a, a great example of Orthodox Christian passion because what happened was that Tolkien fell in love with Edith as a teenager and then he was forbidden to see her by his guardian. He waited for several years, I forget exactly how long, three or five years, um, and he waited until he was permitted to see her again. And in his letters, he later said that he believed that it was this time of suffering that transformed his um, rather callow puppy love into mm. the kind of love that could be the foundation of a long and happy marriage. So his passion had a very practical and earthly result. Yeah. But there's another, there's another um, historical love affair that um, just completely blew my mind. I was um, doing a little bit of research, a little bit more um, brushing up on it, while I was reading the Derugemont book, and it was it was this more than anything else that convinced me that Derugemont actually had a point. Um, so I'm a huge fan of the Pre-Raphaelite artists, especially the and especially the poet Christina Rossetti. And one of the most important of the Pre-Raphaelites was um, Christina's brother Dante Gabriel Rossetti, um, and he had a famous love affair with his model and student Lizzie Siddle. Now he he became obsessed with her, and he drew or painted her you know, hundreds or thousands of times um, over the course of um, a relationship that lasted many years. Um, her health was very bad and she was growing more and more sickly and she became addicted to laudanum and had all sorts of terrible health problems. Um, we have one description of her from a family friend who described her as thinner and more death-like and more beautiful and more ragged than ever. Hmm. Um, and yet despite all this... Um, Rossetti continued to draw her in this really idealised and unchanging way. Um, they became engaged fairly early on, but for 10 years they kept on putting off their marriage. Um, this was something that the rest of the Rossetti family couldn't understand, why they would keep on putting off their marriage. Um, and it wasn't until his obsession with her had sort of already ended and he was painting, seeing other models that, um, that they finally did marry. And they were only married for a couple of years. Um, uh, it wasn't it wasn't going terribly well. Um, and finally, Lizzie accidentally or 
actually we don't know whether it was an accident or um or suicide but she overdosed on laudanum and one writer that i was looking at recently in my own library was saying that uh, lizzie's death simply marks the midpoint of the love affair because what yeah. happened afterwards is that rossetti was you know he, he put on this big show of an extravagant grief um he buried all of his poems in lizzie's coffin he painted her as dante's beatrice um, who, you know, Rossetti had named himself after the original poet Dante, who, um, who wrote this, this uh, wrote the Divine Comedy that was very much influenced by um, this whole medieval courtly love idea. Um, years later, um, Rossetti decided that he wanted to publish the poems that he'd buried with his wife, so he dug up her coffin. It was a public sensation. Um, and, and witnesses claimed that Lizzie's body hadn't decayed and her... Her famous red hair had continued to grow after her death. So it all became this great sort of legendary Victorian yeah. love story. Yeah. And I was, I was just staggered by how well Drugemont's um, courtly love myth explained this whole relationship. Yeah. It, it fits well, doesn't it? Yeah. It, yeah, they were, the, the pre-Raphaelites were huge medieval fanboys and it... Yeah. And, it, and it makes perfect sense that if anyone was going to reproduce a medieval courtly love relationship in his own life, it would have been Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And after reading Derugema, I realized that's exactly what he did. Mm, mm. I mean, you, you have this 10-year-long engagement where they were continually coming up with obstacles to the marriage. Yeah. Um, you, you had Lizzie's, Lizzie's suffering and declining health which um, everybody thought was so artistic and, you know, aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> um, Aesthetic, yes. Sorry. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and finally, you know, uh, she 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 um she did the the perfect thing. She died tragically young, and um, you know, yeah, and, and that became the ultimate consummation of their passion. Yeah, I mean, that really is a good um, example of what he's talking about. But the Tolkien doesn't fit that at all, does it? No, it fits. No, a, I, it's, I it fits a Christian model. Of, exactly. of in other words it ends in a good marriage which the um the uh, medieval um uh passion thing can't fit because um it it's incompatible with it and uh, i think that's very good those are two very good examples of it today uh oh, when the rosetti thing was a while back yes i know but uh, that's they yeah, the very good examples yeah yeah so um, yeah, and, and I was um, I was I was thinking of those as good examples of how the courtly love myth has and hasn't affected us since. And um, I th I think De Rougemont, um makes wonderful points when he says that totalitarianism and and uh, war are examples of um, passion yeah. today, where you know the um, the totalitarian state requires a collective passion, a collective suffering. Yeah. yeah. From people, yeah. I, I, that's that's. I, I read that, and I, I'm still trying to figure that out. How does that work? I'm not saying it's not so, but um, I'm still trying to figure that out. Quite, if you like, all the connecting bits with that. Um, maybe you could help me. I don't know what. You, how do you? Yeah. Oh, I just I just read the book very quickly and thought, ooh, that's interesting. <laughs> it, it does. It, it throws up lots of interesting things that. That make you think, and it makes you think. How does that work through? 
and it can take a while sometimes to think these things through. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, he's, he's, he also says that you see the influence of courtly love in serial monogamy, where, you know, people today yeah. often go through a succession of spouses on this never-ending search for happiness. Um, yes. Because, because a lot of people today are agnostic about life after death, they're not seeking a mystic achievement in death. No. So instead they're sort of seeking personal happiness, which results in serial infidelity. Yeah. And... Because it can um, never end up, it can never end in an happy marriage. So that right. you you move on to the next, ex yeah, this is what you're saying. Can, the reason it can never end in a happy marriage, I think, is because you, they're looking to marry uh, to love, to provide something that love doesn't actually yeah, provide. Not absolutely. not in God's world. No. Um, so it's, I, 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 yeah. So they're making an idol out of it. And the, That's exactly what I, the, how I would sum it up. The problem, with, the problem with idols is they can never deliver what they promise, but they're always tyrants that crush men's spirits and enslave them. Tyrant, exactly. Tyrants. All, uh, sorry, idols always fail, but in the process, they enslave men and crush their spirits. That's how I think it, it works. And, and they destroy the real meaning of life. And that's what I really think that the ultimate, um, I, I really think that the ultimate um, effect of medieval courtly love on our society today and the way that we think about love mm. is this whole idea that love ought to be this transformative, transcendent, quasi-religious, mystical experience. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it can't produce that. I no. mean, um, here's, a, here's a quote from Ernest Hemingway, which I dug out of a Rush Dooney book. He says, he writes, one of his characters is saying, I'm not ambitious Molly of place or power or riches, but of knowledge and wisdom and the lover and priest. I don't want happiness even, Molly, nor comfort, though I'll take all I can get of both. I'm wedded to one quest like a knight of the Holy Grail, and my whole life will go to the achievement. And, and what's, what is this quest for? It's for, and I quote, the everlasting empire of love. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I really believe that this is the attitude underpinning the the absolute ubiquity of romantic love as a theme in, you know, films yeah. or pop songs yeah. or novels. Um, sure, I mean, I'm an author myself and it makes sense to write about love because everyone's so interested in it. Everyone is usually experienced it in some way or another. Um, mm. It's one of those universal experiences that mm. we can all understand. So it's a great thing to write about. But there are other things in life. Mm. <laughs> we, you know, there, there are other things in life that can deeply move us beside romantic love. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. Which, um, you know, the, and, and as part of this whole, uh, this idolization of love, we have this idea that romantic love is somehow more important than other kinds of love. Yeah. Um, and in a way, you see, I think when, we t when we're talking about this romantic love, we use the same word love. <laughs> but, it, you know, being in love isn't the same thing as loving somebody. And, yeah. and that's what that's what's so interesting about what Derugement says, how narcissistic being love is, and how it's not yeah. really it's not really about the other person. It's not loving that other person. It's exactly. it's it's a narcissistic. It's almost a narcissistic self love, really. And so we fail to have real. In some respects, our vocabulary uh, makes it difficult for us to to think clearly about it because we talk about loving somebody we talk about being in love but being in love can lead you to 
uh, or it perhaps is itself. It's not the same thing as loving somebody, and um, yeah, and, and a, a successful like marriage is about loving each other. It's mm. not about narcissism and self fulfillment in that sense. Sorry, you were going to say something. Oh, I think I think one of the classic blunders in in love these days is maybe always um, is the mistake of thinking that if you feel good when you're around someone. That must be that you love them. Yeah. Well, no, love has more to do with um, laying down your life for the other person. Yeah. And and wanting the other person, you know, not not wanting to be around that person because of how you feel when you're out about them, but wanting that person to be most themselves. Yeah. Which which again brings us back to the difference between agape and eros to some extent. Mm. Um, because you completely do. Types of love that work in completely opposite directions. Um, well, one, one idea I had while I was putting together my thoughts for this episode, I think it's very noteworthy that it isn't love, which Paul says is a mysterious picture of Christ and the church. Yeah. It's marriage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So if yeah. anything is a quasi-religious experience, <laughs> mm. Which I think gets over. I think I think I think the identification of marriage with um, you know, Christ and the Church gets a little bit overemphasized in some areas. I agree. Of the church, I mean, the there, where there are other metaphors that the Bible uses as well. Point, but, yeah, I agree. <laughs> well, sorry, it gets, gets overemphasized to the point where we almost make the husband into Christ himself. Yeah, um, but um. Yes, I, I agree with you. And sometimes the, that that metaphor is um, not it's it misused sometimes, in my opinion, and and made more of than actually the Bible does. And sometimes some of the passages are misquoted. And I'm just trying to think where it is now. Um, but we're going off the point a bit. Um, I think it's in Galatians, and I can't just bring it up. Off the top of my head, but sorry, carry on. Uh, I I agree with too, you. Too many yeah. fascinating rabbit trails on this subject. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah. it really does touch everything, doesn't it? Mm. I think this whole thing is pervasive, but we don't always realise how pervasive. And I think that um, things are so connected. Um, and the more connected you see things, the more difficult it is to really explain them in some ways. But I, I do think this um, uh, this whole thing has a, a much... It has a very wide um, effect. And a, it, yes. it, it, it has a greater effect than we realise. I find it very fascinating. And I think it is highly relevant. I think it's highly relevant to the world generally. And to Christians specifically, I'm not. I mean, it's relevant to non-Christians specifically as well. But it is relevant, and I think we do we do need to do more thinking about it. Um, and I think the the church does as well. Though I have to confess, it's difficult to get many Christians thinking about anything. I have to say, I do find that uh, that to be the case. But um, it's a fascinating subject. And, and I am I'm not, and by no means have I learned everything about it. I'm still learning, and there's still more I want to learn. And actually, reading de Rougemont's book a second time, I, there was a lot that I understood more because of what I'd read in the meantime. 
but there's also a lot that I realise now I've only scratched the surface and I need yeah. to know more and this is uh, this is a frustration I mean we are finite beings aren't we and we want to know more than it's probably possible to know in a lifetime but it is fascinating and um, and I think it's a subject that if we understood can help us to understand how we can uh, make change things for the better mm. yeah yeah well it certainly sparked a lot of thoughts in me um, we're getting, uh, we're coming up on one and a half hours of talking. Oh, all right, yeah. <laughs> okay. Unfortunately. No. So I, um, I might wrap up there. That's fine, um, that's fine. Any, any concluding comments that you really wanted to make sure you got in, Stephen? Well, I think that um, my concluding comments are, if, if you really love reading, try and read the... Anders Nygren and the other books on um, that I recommended on the Cathars first because it will prepare you for Derugement's book but it is it is a lot of reading and I understand that so if you can't do that don't let it put you off reading Derugement's book because it is a fascinating read and you it will stimulate you and you'll you'll learn a lot and you may then want to read more and and it, uh, afterwards about the cathars and uh, dualism and, and and it will it will bring it into perspective so don't let it don't let the fact that i've recommended those books put you off that i've recommended you read them first put you off reading derugemont's book just read derugemont's book it's just that they will help so much to put it into perspective and um yeah i think that's what i'd say to conclude excellent Thank you. Um, so, if you want to read Love in the Western World, you can actually get it in PDF format from the Internet Archive under the title Passion and Society. And I might have a look on Internet Archive myself for Anders Nygren's book Agape and Eros. Um, I just wanted to finish it off by reading out some of these amazing one-liners that I found towards the end of the book. I'm going to quote. Once Eros ceases to be a god, it also ceases to be a demon. Everything European is not Christian. Rape and polygamy derive, deprive a woman of her equality by reducing her to sex. Or regarding the pedestalization and idealization of women in courtly love, he says, once she is man's equal, woman cannot be man's goal. I really enjoyed some of those quotes. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're very good. They're very good. Yes, excellent. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for joining me tonight, Stephen. <coughs> well, uh, well, it's morning for me. Thank you very much. I've, I've enjoyed it. It's been, um, it's been good fun. And thank you very much for talking about this. I have, uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's a fascinating subject. And, um, it really, really is. Thank you for listening to The Monstrous Regiment. We hope this podcast inspires and equips you to go and exercise dominion for Christ's kingdom. Terrible as an army with banners. The Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network brings to you a complete lineup of podcasts where you will hear practical and tactical theology. 
Our desire is not simply that you consume our shows, but that you also live out your faith in every area of life. We can talk all day long about these things, but if we fail to put them into practice, then we fail as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, our King. Subscribe now to your favorite Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network shows, or you can subscribe to the Reconstructionist Radio Master Feed, where all of the content we produce, including the audiobooks and audio articles, will pop up as soon as they are available. And don't forget to visit reconstructionistradio.com to volunteer as a narrator or to partner with this ministry financially. May the Holy Spirit stir you into action for Christ and His kingdom.